Uh, guys, go ahead and turn in your Bible back to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And this morning, I want us to go through Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Verses 6 through 15. Right, it's good to be back with you guys. Uh, the whole Munoz fam has fallen ill, very ill. Uh, the latest to go down is Nemo, so pray for him. He is not doing good. However, he reminded me as I left this morning that he's not a baby. So, um, so he's, he's all right. He's going to be fine. Uh, thank you guys for praying for us. Thank you also for caring for our, our family and, and thinking of us even as we welcomed a, a new baby. Some of you... Uh, got together and gave us gifts for the baby and loved on us. And uh, I know that Kaylee Clark was a huge part of that. And I know she has a lot of friends that helped her with that. So thank you guys for for doing that. That's very sweet of you, very thoughtful of you. Um, We love you guys and are grateful for that. We really do hope to bring baby Aaliyah in here soon. Um, But we have just fallen uh, in some hard times with flus and coronaviruses and strange other viruses that we never knew about. So Thank you, guys. We, we love you, and we're grateful for you. And it's good to be back uh, doing what I love most, which is teaching you from the Word of God. Uh, so we're going to do that from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Uh, let's read God's Word uh, together. The Word says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, uh, so walk in Him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all who is the head of all rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have now to dive deeply into your word. May it uh, work in a mighty way in our hearts so that we would be devoted to you. That as we have professed to know Jesus, we would take up our cross daily and walk in following you in a manner that would be worthy of the calling that we have, in a manner that would be worthy of the Lord that we worship. God, everything in our life, the ways that we think, the ways that we speak, the ways that we act, 
all the things that we do. We want everything to turn back and bring you glory. And there is a way that you have asked us to live. You desire for us to live. You've even commanded us to live that would do just that. So help your word this morning to give us strength as we continue to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, friends, as we turn back into this letter, especially after being away from it for a little bit, it's probably helpful to be reminded of where we are and where we're headed, where Paul has kind of brought us along in this letter and where Paul wants to take us. Where we are headed now in this section of Colossians chapter 2, many commentators have said this is the central point. This is the focus. This is the main point in the entirety of this letter. Where we're at now, we have just reached the climax of Paul's argument. This is what Paul's been driving at this entire time. And Paul has gotten there by way of first being grateful for the faith that this church has. Paul is grateful for the Colossians' resilience in the gospel. They have given themselves to knowing God in truth. By the power of God's grace, they know Jesus as he really is. There's just one big issue. There are some in this church, there are some who have come to this church and who have tried to taint the image of Christ that this church originally received. They have tampered with the image of Christ in the way that God has made him known and in the way that Paul has preached Christ to the churches. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so Paul, though he's never been with this church, he's never met this church, they mean something greatly to him because Paul cares about all of God's people. And so he writes them this letter to encourage them, to remind them of their faith, to remind them of the purity of that faith, and perhaps more importantly, to remind them of the Jesus they once believed in and the Jesus they must hold on to. There is no other Christ but the one who has been revealed by God. His truth is truth alone. This Jesus is the only Jesus. He is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who has made all things and through whom all things are held together. He is the one who has authority over everything in this world and most notably over his people. This is the Jesus that these people first believed in. And Paul wants them to be reminded If they are to make it to the end, they must hold on to him and nothing else. There is no Jesus plus anything kind of religion. There there is no faith that operates where Jesus is pretty good, but we need something else. We need more rules and we need more regulations or we need more wisdom and we need more knowledge. No, all of our traditions, all of our rules, all of our regulations, all of our wisdom is found in the person and work of Jesus. So when you're reminded of that, what do you do with it? That's what Paul is aiming at now. Paul wants to now take us into a a bit of a so what. So if Jesus is truly sufficient for us, 
And if Jesus is truly the most supreme being in all the world, in all the universe, if Jesus is truly who he says he is, and if Jesus is truly who we believe him to be, so what? That's the question that we have before us today. And Paul seeks to answer this question by means of three considerations for us. Three things that we must consider so that we would hold on to Christ even as he is faithfully holding on to us. Three things that we need to consider so that as we endure in this life with many voices and many people that will step in and try to tamper with the image of Christ as you have received him through God's word, you would know how to walk with Christ in truth, not based on opinion, not based on perspectives, not based on philosophy, not based on what people think, but based on what you know in how God has revealed himself. Three things to consider so that you can know that you're following Christ the way Christ wants you to follow him. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that by these three considerations in verses uh, 6 through 7. We'll see a faithful walk a faithful walk. In verses 8 through 10, we're going to see a fair warning, a fair warning. And lastly, in verses 11 through 15, we'll see a finished work. A faithful walk, a fair warning, and a finished work. Firstly here, as Paul brings us into this so what moment, He wants us to be reminded, and he wants this church to be reminded, if Jesus is who he says he is, and this is the Jesus that I've proclaimed to the churches, and this is the Jesus that you have received, and this is the Jesus that must be defended, then the first thing that is necessary from you is a proper response. And the only proper response to a faithful Jesus is a faithful Christian, a faithful walk. Verse 6 reads as follows, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's really interesting here, this idea of receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. It's that you've accepted him. It's that you've believed in him. Something that many of you in this room would profess to have done. There was a moment in your life where you turned to Christ and you saw him as he is and you said, I need you, I want you, I receive you, I believe in you, I accept that your testimony is true. Well, that's great news. And we love that here at our church and we love that here in this ministry. We love hearing that you have seen Jesus as he's revealed himself to be, that the true son of God, fully God, fully man, giving his life as a ransom for many, offering you eternal life, showing you that there's more to life than what you might even imagine or know, showing you that your ways are not his ways, and that's okay. He has a better plan for you than you might think. He has offered you something that you could not offer yourself, and you've received that. Praise God. So walk in him. If you have received that gift, if you have received this knowledge, then you must walk in it. The walking will not save you, but the walking will show that you have been saved. 
Walk is just another way that Paul often uses to describe uh, the manner of life that we live. Walk is something that you do every day, isn't it? When you get up in the morning to go brush your teeth, like no one comes in in the room and says like, hey, you know, you got to walk to the bathroom. That's, that's kind of what you need to do right now. You do it and you do it clumsily and you stub your toe and you probably even forget to brush your teeth in the process. I hope not. But it's something that's so natural to you. It, it's, it's become second nature. No one informs you how to do that anymore. No one tells you how to do that anymore. No one coerces you to do that anymore. You do it simply because it's your habit of life. It's a daily living. That's what he means here. Walk in him. Make it your habit to be rooted in Jesus. Make it so that it's natural for you to be found in Christ. And Paul uses this terminology over and over in Scripture. We saw it in Colossians 1.10. You can find it also in Ephesians 4.1, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. You need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of your calling in Him. Colossians 4.5, walk in wisdom. Romans 6.4, walk in newness of life. Romans 13.13, 13, let us walk properly as though it's daytime. 2 Corinthians 5.7, walk by faith and not by sight. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. Ephesians 2.10, Christ has made us new. He's created us to be a new creation, prepared for good works, that we should walk in them. Most notably, in light of this passage in Colossians 2.6, we find 1 John 2.6 that says, whoever abides in Christ ought to walk in as he walked. This is the emphasis Paul is making. Many of you claim to know Jesus and you're still sleeping. Many of you claim to know Christ and there's no movement. And you have heard it often and so many times that your faith resides not in your power, resides not in your work. It resides solely on Christ, but it makes you lazy. Lazy Christians need to beware because the only kind of Christian that exists is a walking one. You need to be committed to picking up your cross daily and following after Christ. Walk in him. If you've received him, your life needs to be a commitment to following after Jesus day after day after day. If you've received him, walk in him. What does it look like to walk in him? Well, verse 7 rounds that out for us. A faithful walk will be modeled by these things. If you're truly walking with Christ, if you are giving your life each and every day, to following him, you should see what verse 7 says in your life. Your life is rooted. It is built up in him. It's established in the faith, just as you were taught, and it also abounds in thanksgiving. What does it look like to walk in Jesus? Well, number one, you live a rooted life. You are the man. You are the woman. And Psalm chapter 1, 
You, you are blessed because your life is so rooted that you are like a tree that cannot be moved back and forth, that cannot be swayed back and forth. In fact, it doesn't even desire that. It, it doesn't desire amidst the storm that it would be uprooted and planted somewhere else. It desires in the midst of the storm to be more well-rooted. That's you. If you love Christ and you walk with him daily, you will be rooted in him. You, you won't look for different circumstances. You will look to his sovereignty. You won't look that God always changes everything about your life so that life would be easier for you. You would look that no matter what comes to you in this life, you would be more rooted in him to withstand anything that might come your way. You must be rooted. Not only so, you must be built up in him. To, to be built up in him, it's Absolutely, we understand the idea that Christ is the foundation of our faith, but I don't think that's the point that Paul is making in this verse. To be built up in him is actually to talk a little bit more about Christ being the very being that keeps us together. He keeps your life from falling apart. He is the foundation. He's also the glue. He is the foundation. He's also what keeps the bricks from falling apart. You've seen it. You've seen a brick house. You understand that when you walk up to a brick house, no one would stack bricks up against each other and just hope that it never falls over. That would be dumb. You would stack bricks and you would ensure that those things are held together by what they call mortar, right? Like you would put something, a binding agent that would keep all of that together. That is Christ. As he builds his church and even as he builds you up, he is the one that sustains you and keeps you together. And so you must be rooted in him and built up in him so that your faith would be established, anchored, secured, immovable, steadfast. A faith that is rooted in anything else, a faith that is being built up by anyone else will not be established. That's Paul's message for us here. And this is the epitome of a faithful walk. It's someone who has firm roots. It's someone who depends on Christ's work. And it's someone whose faith is established not because of themselves, but because of him. Notice lastly here, there's a fourth thing that reminds us of what this faithful walk looks like. And unfortunately, so many Christians are not prone to it. All these things, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you want to know that you're a Christian? Do you want to know that you're walking faithfully with Christ? Do you want to know that your life is rooted in him? Do you want to know that your life is being built up in him? Do you want to know that your faith is firmly established? Try this. Be grateful. Give God praise for who he is and what he's done. Stop complaining. Stop pointing at everyone else as being the problem. Stop giving God every excuse for why you don't have time to give him praise right now, but you do have time to ask him for everything you want. What if you were the kind of Christian that no matter the circumstances, you look to God as worthy of praise because his praise is not bound by what's going on in your life. His praise is bound by who he is and what he's already done. 
Each and every morning that we wake up and have breath in our lungs is an opportunity to turn back to God in praise, recognizing we are not worthy of his grace. We are not worthy of his love. We are not worthy of his care. We are not worthy of his attention, but we have it because of Jesus. If that doesn't stir up a Christian that is grateful, nothing will. You must be grateful. A grateful life is the Christian life. If you want to walk like a Christian, you'll have to give God praise day in and day out. Because newsflash, that's not just what you're doing in this life. It's what you're going to do for eternity. And if you don't have a palate for it now, I don't know why you would think you would have it later. Each and every one of us has an opportunity today as we have received Christ, to walk in him, being rooted in him, built up in him, our faith established in him. And what's more, living a life in the present that turns to God and gives him praise at every moment of our life. He is worthy of it. Are you committed to that? Is that what your life looks like? Paul gives us this commendation because a faithful walk is one thing, but he recognizes that this walk that he's calling us to live by, it's difficult. And it's not only difficult because you and I still wrestle with the flesh, it's difficult because there's so many in our lives, there's so many people in our lives, there's so many voices in our lives that would seek to tempt us and to try us to step away from that kind of walk and to enter back into the walk that we no longer need. And so, insofar as Paul gives us the tenets to a faithful walk, he also secondly gives us here a fair warning. I think all of us would say we want to live up to that kind of walk. We all want to live a life that mimics what he says here in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. But we also all would hopefully agree that there are many people in our lives, there are many voices in our lives that seek to distract us from going in that direction. And Paul doesn't shift the blame on those people for doing that. In fact, he here, he tries to get your attention. Because to give in to voices and to give in to people who do not love Christ and are trying to sway you from Christ That's bad on them, yes, but that's worse on you for listening. And so he gives us here this fair warning. Verse 8, see to it, pay attention, listen, watch closely that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to to Christ. If you are to fall away from your faith, if you are to not be what you claim to be, if you are to be someone who says you love Jesus, but your life ends up proving that you weren't, and you go off chasing everything that the world has to offer, and you go off chasing everything that the world tells you to believe, and you go off chasing everything that the world would tell you is right, even though you know it's not, Paul tells you to beware. 
But also Paul points squarely at you and says, you're the one that listened. You're the one that should have paid attention. You're the one who should have been watchful. See to it that no one takes you captive. The responsibility has been placed on your shoulders to be watchful. Be mindful. See to it that no one takes you captive. It's this idea of uh, when someone came in or there was a war and a king came in and took over a particular region or a particular people. You understand the concept of spoils of war, right? If you were defeated, they would take everything in your land. They would take livestock. They would take gold. They would take the things from the temple. They would take everything from the market. They would take women and children. They would take literally everything that inhabited the place. They would take all of it to express their dominance. Paul is saying, be watchful lest you be taken away in that manner. Lest your life be lost in that same way. And what is it that you need to be mindful of? What is it that can take someone so captive? It's philosophy and empty deceit. Here Paul is talking about really one and the same thing. His point is to not be taken captive by philosophy, something that many of you are familiar with. And in fact, that word philosophy, you get it from two Greek words that are put together. One word is the word love, and the other is the word wisdom. And so it's understood to be a love for wisdom. That's what philosophy is. And you kind of see that, especially nowadays. I mean, when you study philosophy, it's like a never-ending battle with overthinking. You just can't stop thinking. And so you think, and you think, and you think, and you're like that little statue thinker guy who just thinks and thinks and thinks. And there's so much thinking, but there is no knowledge in it. That's Paul's point. And Paul isn't talking about that knowledge that is simple to us, like, you know, milk goes in your cereal. Paul is talking about knowledge and wisdom that accords with your worldview, who you are as a person, who God is. There is philosophy infiltrating this church, and we're talking about Colossae, but also even our world today. There is much thought and much wisdom and much knowledge that is making its way in that is not helpful. In fact, it is empty and it is deceitful. It has no power and it has no basis to claim any knowledge. Not only that, it deceives people into thinking it's something that it's not. All this overthinking happens when you, ref- when you refuse and push God out of the equation. That's Paul's point. He doesn't want you to be caught captive to thinking about life, to musing about reality, to concerning yourself with things that are spiritual while you leave God and his son out of the picture. Is that not a picture of our world today? There are so many thoughts about who you are as a person, who you can be, what you can choose to to do with your life, how it is that you ought to live, how it is that you should relate to other people, how it is that you should think about God. The fact that really, if you were to look around, it seems like there is no God. The Bible boils all this down to call it foolishness. None of it avails to anything because none of it is rooted to Christ. 
wisdom is good. In fact, we could even say having a love for wisdom is good. But it's having love for the right kind of wisdom. And Paul is warning this church, you've given yourself, or if you're not careful, you will give yourself to a love for thinking. But I'm afraid that it's not going to be a love for thinking in a way that Christ has made knowledge known. You're giving yourself to thinking. You're going to give yourself to wisdom that is built up by human knowledge and not by divine reasoning. This isn't Paul's first time warning God's people of this. Paul warns the young Timothy when he writes to him, 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's the gospel. Guard the truth of the gospel. Guard the truth of Christ and avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. There's all kinds of knowledge out there. There's all kinds of wisdom out there. But if it isn't labeled with God's name on it, if it doesn't have the imprint of Christ on it, if it doesn't have the authority of Scripture in it, you need to be careful. You don't accept something just because someone has a degree. You don't accept something, you don't accept knowledge just because someone has a title in life. You don't accept knowledge simply because someone owns a particular position or has been viewed by the world as to be the expert on something. You own knowledge and you receive knowledge on the basis that it accords with what God has said in his word. This is Paul's warning to this church. Elsewhere, because this isn't just a battle for Paul, this is a battle throughout the history of the church, and Paul was not alone in it. John dealt with the same thing. It's interesting that John writes this way, that mimics so much what we see here in Colossians 2. In, in 2 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, look at what John writes to this church. This is love, that we walk according to Christ's commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Essentially, therefore, Since you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him a greeting. For whoever greets him partakes in his wicked works. It seems like that's the very same message that Paul has for us in Colossians. If you've received Jesus... Walk in Jesus. And as you walk in Jesus, beware of those who seek to distract you. 
And how will you be able to tell those who seek to distract you? They do not come to you claiming Christ, or at least claiming Christ alone. They might come with Jesus, but it's Jesus and something else. It's Jesus and all good works. It's Jesus and, you know, we got to turn this country upside down. It's Jesus, but you better get on board with my agenda. That's not the gospel we received. That's not the gospel that will keep us secure, and that is not the way to live that would continue to be rooted in who Christ is as you've received him. Instead, Paul points to the Jesus we have received. He points to the one that we do know. He points to the one who is the author of all true knowledge. Unlike philosophy, which is full of ideas, Jesus is full of truth. We don't need more ideas. We need true knowledge. And so Paul points to it. Don't give yourself to overthinking about life. Give yourself to Christ and have everything you need to know about life. Look at verse 9 in Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is who has been afforded to you. Instead of giving yourself over to all the ideas that exist in the world, to all the ideas that come from the reasoning of men who want nothing to do with God, to all the ideas that come even from the elemental spirits of the world who are against God, give yourself to Christ, this Christ, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. It's not the first time we see that. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, he is a man like us, but he also had the full divine nature in him. That's who he is. Those two things are not pitted against each other. Those two things exist in reality. And nothing is more real than this, that the word of God, who is God and was God, became flesh. This is the Jesus we know. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we must follow. Give yourself to him. Why? Because he's the head of all rule and authority. You know, in some way, what Paul is aiming at here is not, in these verses, your personal relationship with Jesus. He's aiming at reminding you who he is, lest you think to fall away. Jesus is Lord, is Paul's point. And that has no regard for what you think of him. Do you get that? Do you understand that Jesus is Lord regardless of how you feel about him? Do you, do you understand that Jesus is Lord no matter whether you believe in him or not? That's Paul's point. It, it mimics Philippians chapter 2. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, believer and non-believer. That's who he is. If you've seen it, there's something your life must do to respond in worship. It's to walk in him and it's to beware of those who would keep you from walking in him. Give yourself to him as he is. God, man, the mediator between God and us, and the one who is head of all rule and authority. He is Lord.
Give your life to him. How do we know that? And how do we understand that this Jesus is worthy of us following him? As we seek to live in a a faithful walk and as we seek to heed this fair warning, what would prompt us to do that? Well, Paul understands that question in mind and Paul's argument leads in this direction. And beginning in verse 11, what he lays out for us is Christ's finished work. The basis for all faithful living. The basis for our endurance in this life to the glory of God as we seek to walk in him, living lives rooted in him, built up in him, established in faith, living lives that are grateful for the gospel and living lives that are desiring God's truth and not the world's truth. All of that is possible because of all of God, what God has done. A finished work, a work that is complete, a work that doesn't require anything else from you, a work that doesn't need your help, a work that isn't looking for you to come in and try to finish off what God tried to start, a work that is complete. Look with me at verse 11 to what God has done to make all of this possible for you, to make it possible for you to walk in him and for you to beware of empty and deceitful philosophy. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's stop there. Beginning here, what makes Christ so worthy of being followed? What makes him Lord? How has he possessed this? This God made man, how is it that he is so worthy? Well, he's done something in your life that you could never do for yourself. And he's done something in your life that religion could never gain for you. Religion could never earn you. We saw it amongst the people of Israel. The circumcision, it was a, a sign that they had. It's a sign that Paul points to now. And it was a sign meant to denote that these people belong to God. These were his covenant-keeping people. These people had God's promises. These people had God's attention. They had God's affection. God belonged to these people, and these people belonged to God. But the sign was supposed to be just that. It was supposed to be a symbol of what was taking place in these people's hearts, something that was not actually taking place. These people might have given outward expression by means of this symbol, that they belonged to God, but in their hearts, they could not be farther from God. And so God does something about it. And so putting circumcision to the side, in fact, the way he calls it here, there's a a new circumcision, that of Christ It's one that is modeled now for us by baptism, one in which you know what baptism symbolizes, right? You go down in water and you come up, and it's more than just a quick bath. It's it's actually meant, for some of you, it's it's actually meant to to be a symbol of your belief in Christ and what that looks like. And not only that, it's a symbol of you partaking in the very life and death of Christ. 
You, you go down in the water to mimic the death and burial of Jesus, and you come back up to symbolize life eternal. This is what's been afforded to you in Jesus. This is what makes him worthy. When your death and your whole life, when your entire life striving after God, trying to keep up with him, trying to please him, trying to do enough so that God would turn to you and say, you know what, you're forgiven, when none of that would avail you, when your dying meant simply receiving then the eternal wrath and punishment of God, when all of that was true, Christ came and offered you himself and offered you the circumcision of Christ, the removal of your heart, and the granting of a new one. It has no longer anything to do with what you do to your body. It has everything to do with what happens inside of you. Christ has made it possible that your life can change because he will change it. He will strip out your heart of flesh, your heart of stone, and he will give you a heart of flesh. It's as he says here in in verse 11, It's by putting off the body of the flesh. The the point that Paul is making is that when Christ comes in and he performs this spiritual surgery on your heart, he removes you from your old self and he makes you a new person. That makes him worthy. That's who you walk with. Don't walk with a living Christ as a dead man. Don't walk with a living Christ in the old ways. That's not what he died for. He died to separate you from all of those things that kept you from God, from all of those things that offended God, from not just from those things, but even from your desire for them, even from your affection for them, even from your will to disobey God. He has freed you from all that so that you would walk with him in newness of life. This is as Galatians 6.15 puts it. Now, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. The point is, the whole thing that Israel did to the body, that never had power. What has power is being made, Galatians 6.15, into a new creation. Some of you, the struggle is so hard between you and God, it's because you're not new yet. You wouldn't pour new wine into old wineskin. That's what Jesus said. The point is this, we can't expect new life from something that's old and dead. When you see roadkill on the road, you, you know that thing's staying there, right? Nobody's expecting that thing to come up, unless it's a possum, maybe it'll pop up. But that's because it's not dead. If you see it on the road like that, you wouldn't expect it to get up and start crawling. And such is the state of some of your hearts. It will not move for Christ. It will not live for Christ. It will not desire Christ. It will not love Christ because it isn't new. Stop striving. Stop trying to earn your way in. Stop trying to knock at heaven's door. It's already knocked on your heart. Jesus has made it possible to get rid of the old self and to live new. How did he do that? 
through his own power, through his own work. Verse 12 tells us, right? We've been buried with him in baptism in which we were also raised with him through faith. And so it's on the basis of our belief, but notice what the basis of this power is. Sure, it's on our belief in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. When we believe, we have no reason to boast in our belief, but every reason to boast in the one who grants us that belief. It is the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead and guarantees that all those who believe in him will likewise raise from the dead. Verse 13 goes on to declare for us how this work has been accomplished and why it is so finished. It reads, You who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. It mimics what we have read so many times in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. It's that we who were dead, we have now been made alive in Christ. How? By having forgiveness for all our trespasses. The canceling of the record that stood against us with its legal demands. It's a beautiful portrait that Paul displays for us here. This record of debt, it's actually an IOU. You ever heard of that? And it's not written by God, it's written by you. As his creature, it's a note that you write to God and you say, I will live in your ways. And every single one of you has broken that promise. Every single one of us has broken that rule. We have broken that document. And and the way that it works in God's economy is that when you promise something of him, he expects it. And when he doesn't get it, there's consequences. That's why it says here, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We have promised him our obedience. As his creatures, he he has required that. We have broken that, and now there are legal demands on our life. Someone has to pay the price, and someone did. You're still here, so it obviously wasn't you. It was him. He wiped it all away. He's forgiven us. He's canceled that debt. That's what that means. It means that he wiped it away. You ever use a magic eraser? One of those like white little sponge looking things? They're awesome. Ezra and Nemo write on the walls every day. But you know what? Praise God for the magic eraser because you would never know it. But it's because we wipe it out. That's what this looks like. And not only so, but look at the beautiful imagery he sets up for us in the end of verse 14. How has he made us alive together with him? Well, he's forgiven us. He's canceled our record of debt. What we owed him and could not pay back, someone had to pay. Where was it paid? He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. Christ paid. And he paid it in full. It was a common practice, and if you were to go back to the crucifixion story, you would see it. Right above Jesus' cross, they nailed a certain inscription, didn't they? This is the king of the Jews. In other words, that was his crime. His crime was that he was the ruler of a people and they didn't believe him. What a beautiful imagery Paul paints for us. Those who have believed in Jesus, right next to king of the Jews, has all of your sins written on there too. Everything you've ever done to offend God, 
Everything you've ever done to disobey him, everything you've ever done to to show a lack of love for him, that is all nailed on Jesus' cross. And his blood, his death is sufficient to pay for all of them. While he had no sin, he took all of your sins to make you right with God. That's why verse 15 is so powerful. That's why verse 15 makes so much sense. On that cross, as weak as Jesus might have looked, on that cross, as frail as he might have been, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus was never more victorious than on that cross because there your sins were paid for and there new life was made possible. You want to walk in him. You want to live for him. You, you want to think like him. You want to be able to discern the things in this world that are built up on lies and have no regard for his truth. You want to be able to live in that way. Give yourself to Jesus who gave himself to you. It's because he is who he is that now he has all authority and no one can contest that. And it's because of that that Paul closes with this portrait of his triumph. It's supposed to mimic the imagery of a, of a Roman emperor after taking over and conquesting a group of people. Oftentimes what he would do is he would take all of his winnings, all of his spoils, and he would parade them through the streets. Jesus has done that because he's won. He can't lose. He hasn't lost. The victory is his. And therefore, in your life, the victory is yours as well. You can walk in him. You can discern truth from lies. And you can give all praise and glory back to him. Because it's done. And he's won. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to spend time together beholding you as you are. Help us to live before you in a way that would honor your glory, that would honor your son. By the power of your spirit, help us to turn back to God in praise as we ever think of your glorious grace and as we seek to live a life that honors the lordship of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.